Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of April 2021 and this is episode 202. On this week's podcast, I talk to historian Dr Spencer Jones, senior lecturer at the University of Wolverhampton, about the wartime letters of General Cecil Pereira, which he recently edited with Michael Le Cicero and Edward Pereira. This book is published by Helian & Co. I spoke to Spencer from his home in the West Midlands. Hi Spencer, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. To start with, could you give us some information about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, it's great to be back on, Tom. Um, I believe it's my third time now on the podcast. Uh, for my background, it's it's quite simple. It, it all started, my interest, not just in the Great War, but in military history, it all started at my granddad's house when I was about four years old and I was shown the Battle of the River Plate, classic 90 British war movement. As a four or five-year-old, I thought this was the most exciting film that had ever been made and could ever be made. I, I was absolutely blown away by the action. I was thrilled by it. From that moment on, I was completely hooked on all aspects of military history. Uh, I was lucky enough as well that I grew up in a, a family where my grandparents had, of course, lived through the Second World War, had fought in the Second and my parents very supported my interest in history. And so it developed from there. My interest in the great really sparked with a book that was given to me, again, through my grandparents, <clears throat> that was called The Wonder Book of Daring Deeds. And it had this magnificent cover on the front of Lawrence of Arabia, charging on camelback into battle against the Ottoman. And inside there were all sorts of wonderful other adventure stories. It was published in the late 30s. And one that, that always stuck in my head was a story called No Surrender. And it was actually about the Battle of Coronel and the Falkland naval battles in 1914. And from that, it led me, that led me into the first, first sense. And then some years later, quite a few years later, in fact, I picked up a copy of John Terrain's Mons, The Retreat from Vic retreat to victory which was in a pair a post office at the time uh, there, there used to be a little book stand in the post office i picked it up for a very very cheap price as i remember it was about 50 pence and read it and was absolutely thrilled from that point a complete aficionado of all things 1914 and um, fast forward 20 plus years and i still am so there's that that's how i ended up in the first world so i wonder whether you could start by giving us a brief overview uh, about your book that looks at edward Pereira. Absolutely. So there's a there's a great sort of story about this, um, and this is the, uh, the 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 way that we actually came across this book, which I, I'd like to discuss. This is to do with my co-editor colleague and friend, great friend, Dr. Michael Le Cicero. Strangely enough, he's a great collector of First World War artifacts, ephemera, and so he actually uh, had he owned and indeed still owns a copy of um, Cecil Pereira's or Edward Pereira. Um, his dress uniform, he actually owns it. And this is, he's had it in his collection as, along with other aunts for, for years. And then through conversation with his friends, he was introduced to the descendants of the Pereira family, particularly uh, Edward Pereira, who is Pereira's uh, grandson. And this put, this put us into contact with the Pereira clan, which allowed us then to discover through the, the, the great generosity of the, that um, Cecil had kept voluminous and incredibly interesting correspondence, mainly with his wife, Helen, but also with many other figures. Absolutely fascinating. A, a record that covers his entire war from 1914 until the end of the 1980. These were um, in the Pereira collection and through various correspondence, Edward very generously asked we'd like to see them. And then from that point, the possibility of publishing for 
We're, of course, absolutely thrilled to do this. And so the book that has resulted, the book Catholic General, is the uh, is the edited version of Pereira's wartime letters and correspondence from the outbreak of War in until the very end, uh, at the end of 1918. It's been edited by myself um, and Michael Cicero, and also by Edward Pereira himself, Ransom. And when we say edited, we've tried to keep absolutely as much as possible in these letters. So these, these we haven't corrected spellings, for example, and we haven't tried to uh, shape the letter to convey a worldview. We've kept them in, uh, including letters that are, um, are perhaps minority interest, uh, you know, not necessarily to do with war, might be to do with um, Cecil, for example, worrying about things that are going on on the home front or to do with his finances or to do with his home. But we feel that by keeping as much in as possible, it gives a much richer picture of the man and his family and his outlook on life. And so Catholic General is a collection of these letters, and it gives a really good insight into the life and times, and indeed, of course, the war fight of a regular officer from a very prestigious regiment, he was a Coldstream Guardsman, who rose to Drew um, from 1914, he was commanding the 2nd Coldstream Guards in 19, rose from that, and by the end of the war, he was the commander of 2nd Division, and indeed, if the war had gone on much longer, he'd have almost certainly ended up as a corps commander. So it's a wonderful account of one officer's war. And he spent the entire war in the West, uh, fought in numerous major battles. I mean, almost any any major battle you can name the British Army was involved in, he was there in some capacity. So it's a wonderful account of his wartime experience, but it's also, I think, a really interesting insight into just the life and times of an Edwardian officer, and also, the, by extension, the life and times of his family, outlook that they had, the troubles that they experienced, and, and more besides. It's, it's like being taken into a, a bit of a time capsule and getting a real feel for how uh, Pereira and his family lived. Now, I wonder whether we could get some background on Pereira and look at his early life and his schooling interests and family. Absolutely. Well, well Pereira, as those of uh, have got an interest in Portuguese history might recognise, uh, Pereira is, of course, a Portuguese name. And Pereira, the Pereira clan itself was uh, from a Portuguese lineage. They'd been a merchant adventurers, really from the, the, the 15th and 16th century onwards. And in, the, uh, in that period, they had been traders in Macau in modern day China, operating Portuguese trading there. They'd always been, uh, had this strong merchant adventure element, and they'd spent centuries actually basing their, their wealth and indeed their life around the, the East Indies and the East Indies trade. As Britain expanded into the East Indies from the 18th century onwards, they came under British influence and ultimately were brought into uh, British business interests in the 19th, which effectively Anglican family, who, because of their distance, of course, from Portugal, had already become some, uh, you know, developed a very independent attitude. So they were brought in, they became part of the um, yeah, the great British in, uh, business interests that operate in the 19th century <clears throat> in the Far East. <clears throat> but of course, being from a Portuguese background, they were Catholic. And although the prejudice against Catholic Britain had declined from its peak in the 16 and 1700s, it absolutely still was there. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So Pereira, the Pereira family were, of course, Catholics, uh, which gives the name of the Catholic general. Um, Pereira himself, <coughs> Pereira himself was educated in Birmingham at the Oratory, not too far uh, from me, and he chose to enter the Royal Military Academy Sand uh, upon graduation. Um, and indeed, having passed out of Sanders, he joined the Coldstream Guards, the premier guard uh, of the British Army. Uh, the great rivals, of course, the Grenadier Guards, and I'll leave it to our listeners to decide which is the of those two guards, battalions. Um, so he's, he was a, a Coldstream Guardsman, um, had, as many officers did, young officers did in the late 19th century. He had some terrific opportunities for adventure and exploration, and perhaps it speaks a little bit to the Pereira clan uh, love 
of world travel and indeed their history as merchant adventurers that quite quickly he found himself seconded for that wonderful phrase, special extra regimental employment. And he was in the uh, the Niger territory, of course, he's now modern day Niger, which at the time wasn't part of the British Empire. It was a, an enclave effectively run by various commercial interests. He served there on the Niger-Sudan Expeditionary Force in 1897, a very small military force entered this, this vast region uh, to bring it under clear British control. Uh, and it actually encountered various opposition from the local tribes who weren't too happy about this. Various engagements were actually fought, um, including one where the very, very small British column, which was <clears throat> perhaps only uh, about 550 men, including some native uh, Askari soldiers, uh, were overthrew some 30,000 tribes. Uh, and ultimately, the campaign was successful and led to the creation of the Southern Nigeria um, at various uh, at the end of the campaign. Um, so he travelled widely around Africa and saw lots and lots of service, uh, Uganda and Niger and elsewhere, before eventually, of course, he, he ended up in the Boer War alongside his battalion, the Coldstream Guards, and served with distinction throughout this conflict. Uh, and indeed, actually, after the war had ended, he, uh, he would return to Africa and would serve in the West African Frontier Force right until the years preceding the war. So he, he was a man who'd seen a great deal of um, imperial service. I should say that his service after the Boer War was, was quite uneventful in the West African Frontier Force. He, by his own admission, he commented that for all the years he spent out there, he, he seemed to be um, completely devoid of incidents or excitement. So I mean, whether that's a bad thing or not, I'll, I'll leave to the listeners to decide. But so Pereira did comment that it was relative prison day. He also married, and this is important, he married uh, Helen Lane Fox, the uh, daughter of George Sackville Lane. Um, there's an interesting Catholic connection. Pereira, of course, was Catholic. And George Sackville Lane Fox, the, who would have been Pereira's father, and indeed he was Pereira's father, had actually been disinherited from his own family because uh, he'd made the choice to have uh, sometime in the uh, mid-1800s. So it gives you some idea that there's still prejudice within the upper reaches of the British aristocracy at this time. So, But it did mean, of course, that um, both Helen and Cecil were Catholic, contributed to their long and happy marriage. So he married Helen in 1903, and they lived a really glittering life. Once he was back from the West African Frontier Force, he returned to the Coldstream Guards, took command of the uh, the second Coldstream Guards. In there. And up to that point, they lived a, a glittering life. Uh, the, the edges of aristocracy uh, introduced to the court, connections uh, at the royal court. Connections with many British army. A regular guest, for example, was Sir John French at their lavish dinner party. And I think that their their life up until the end, in many ways, encapsulated that aristocrat um, officer set that existed in the, the pre-First uh, World War army. Now, the title of your book is Catholic General, Could, and you've already alluded to Pereira's faith. Could you um, tell us how important um, his uh, Christianity was to him? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, as a Catholic, it does mark him out somewhat, society, the, the British military society, not to mention British society as a whole. Uh, his faith was very, very important to him, and perhaps even more so to his wife, Helen. And in their correspondence, there's frequent reference the religious concept and sometimes this can be as a source of comfort but or it might be a source even uh, which may seem a little unusual it's perfectly common in the first war or allusions to prophecy prophecy was much more common in the first than it is perhaps today um what it did provide of course was a sense of stoic stoicism which is so important for british army's officer class in the first in general um and that 
comfort, what I would say, a comfortable acceptance of their faith. It was not something that they felt troubled by. Um, really comes through in these letters. This is not a, a sort of that the dour Presbyterian will of Douglas Haig. This is a more um, open and uh, approachable view of Catholicism that serves as both an anchor not only to uh, Cecil's wartime experiences, but also an anchor into their marriage, into their family life, and into their acceptance of the, the incredible events that are occurring around them as part of the First World War. Uh, what I think readers will find interesting is the, the comparative subtlety of religion. Yes, they, they do discuss religion quite often, but it's done so in a way that perhaps shows their comfort that there's no need for showy acts of faith, showy statements. These are two people very clearly comfortable with their religion, um, regarded as a source of both strength, comfort, or of strength, comfort and power, but at the same time don't feel uh, any great need uh, to um, make make it part of their make dis- great displays of it partly. And I think that's that's really interesting study. Of so we get, we get to the outbreak of the Great War. Now, what commands did Pereira hold um, through his career between 1914 and 1918? Well, Pereira had, in some ways, a, a military career that was quite quite common to regular officers who'd survived great bloodletting of 1914. He went to war as the officer commanding the 2nd Battalion, Coldstream Guards, saw serious action throughout this period. So fought through the Great Retreat of 1914. Then he saw intense action at First Eve in 1914, where, let's not forget, the first Coldstream Guards were effectively destroyed at the Battle of Gelleville Crossroads on the 20th October 14. He was subsequently promoted to command 85th Brigade in the newly formed 28th Regular Division, in which he fought at both Second Eve and at Luce, where he was injured. He was injured in the foot by a shrapnel burst at the, the early stages of the Battle of Luce and um, actually missed uh, his 28th division's terrible experiences in the Hohenzollern Redoubt. Then he was given a, a promotion which meant a great deal to him and became commander of the 1st Guards Brigade, which of course can only be commanded by a guardsman. Pereira, by virtue of being Coldstream, was allowed to, do, to take this on. Fought to the Battle of the Somme as um, leading 1st Guards Brigade. At the end of the year, the war for his performance, largely with the Guards Brigade, he's promoted to command 2nd Division in sec- with 2nd Division course, highly regarded regular formation. He commanded this through uh, major battles, Arras, Cambrai, the German Spring Offensive, and then the 100 days um, later, it advanced the British Army to victory. So he saw serious action wherever he went. He was always in the thick of battle. Um, his, his actual wartime career is reads something like a, a greatest hits of the British Army. Every major battle um, of each year, he seemed to find himself involved in some way, shape or form. And aside from his wounding at Loose, um, and very effects of illness, he was actually led um, a remarkably charmed life and avoided the fate that befell many of his colleagues as he went to, that he went to war with in 1914. So he had a tremendously, um, an action-packed military, say the very little. And so what do his wartime letters tell us about his wartime experience and contribution? There's, there's so much in these letters that you can read them uh, time and again and find something new, depending on how you approach them. But for me, the, there's two things that, that really fly out. And partially this is because of my own interest in 1914 and 15 and, and the era of the war when the regular army was still very much a distinct opponent of the BEF as a whole. One thing that, that really comes out, and it's fascinating, but also it's quite tragic, the extent to which in 1940, close-knit regular battalions and regiments like the Coldstream Guard functioned as an extended family. Cecil knows everybody within the Coldstream Regiment. He knows fellow officers in the 1st uh, Battalion, 2nd Battalion, and elsewhere. And so does Helen. And these, these are men that he is socialised with. These are men who he counts as friends, as sporting colleagues, and more besides. It's fascinating they refer to them so often by nicknames or by 
um, references that, of course, Helen Costan, you know, we as the editors have tried to explain where we can. And the closeness that the both he and Helen have to their fellow officers really gets across the, the sense that pre-war regular battalions were families. And, of course, as the casualties mount up, the attrition rate of officers in 1914 is absolutely dreadful, especially because of the fake first Coldstream Guards, as I aforementioned, that destroyed effectively on the 29th of October during the First Battle of Eve. The, the, the pain that this causes, particularly Helen, as news of uh, officers being killed or be going missing, perhaps permanently missing, they're not leaving prison. The pain this causes, particularly Helen, as she writes, to, is, is so apparent. Of course, she's dealing with widows back in uh, Britain. They're desperately trying to find information about their husbands and sons, what's happened to them. Uh, and it really gets across that, that the fact that the pre-war army was quite a small, closely knit, um, you know, a real family. It had a really unique feel. And it, it emphasises something of the tragedy, I think, of the regular army that we're apt to forget. It's We tend to dismiss the regular army and say, well, it was all destroyed at the end of and very quickly we move our attention onto the new armies, which who have their own story to tell. But let's not forget that, the, that, that when we say the regular army was destroyed, this was destroying not merely the lives of the regular army, but it was tearing apart a fabric that it knitted them together for years before the broke out. I think those letters really get that well. The other thing I think that the, the letters get across is the tremendous richness of experience that one could have as a uh, as a successful officer Pereira was. So he rises through the rank. He meets a wide variety of characters, some of whom he likes others he does not. He has to learn a lot as he goes along. He starts as a battalion commander and ends as a divisional CO. He commands different brigades different um, at different times. He fights on different fronts. He sees the war evolve that goes through. And it's fascinating to see Cecil's own evolution as a commander. His personality remains you know, fairly, fairly fixed. He's honest, optimistic, uh, with a, a dry sense of humour particularly when he's writing to Helen, his wife, but also these letters include uh, letters to his friends and colleagues and indeed letters back, back to Cecil as well. So he gets across some of his personality and the variety of experience he's fighting, the difference in fighting at first eat, which is such utter chaos in 19 to how he perceives, for example, 100 days come, makes for a really fascinating contrast. And he gets across the fact uh, that this is not merely a, a static, it's not merely a war in which... Um, the army as a concept has a learning. There's also a personal learning here. So Cecil's moderately hopeful in 1940 the war will end quickly. By 1918, he's not entirely convinced the war will end by the end of this year. It's interesting to see how he develops his own command style, how he stays in touch with people, how friendships go, and how, above all else, he develops as a... There's so much in this, not merely military either. It's also it's a reflection on the culture that he possessed. It's a reflection on how he interacted with his family and his friends. It really is like... a a window into somebody's private life um, and seeing how a, a middle ranking regular officer went from Italian Visional CO is, is a fascinating journey and one that I hope lots of readers will enjoy. Edward, was he a Portuguese speaker and if so, did he have contact with the Portuguese forces that were fighting on the Western Front? Well, in truth, I don't actually know if Portuguese linguist. Um, certainly he he, could, he had certain um, linguistic talents. So one thing he includes quite a lot in the, uh, the book are is phonetic French, um, which was quite entertaining as an editor to translate. We, could, we always did manage to translate it, but his spelling was somewhat eccentric. He also knows quite a few other um, words common in the British Army, Hindu words and, and so on and so forth, which he uses from time to time. Whether he was actually a Portuguese, uh, he could speak Portuguese, I confess I don't actually know. Uh, his contact with the Portuguese expeditionary force was, and I suppose this is typical of the British Army when you have somebody with a piece of ground, why would you uh, uh, even consider putting them into contact with the expeditionary force? So 
he didn't really have any contact uh, with them as such, but he was certainly aware of them. And indeed, he commented their presence, uh, their arrival and so forth. But it would have been very fascinating if he had been, uh, even if briefly attached or briefly uh, given some opportunity to, to intermix them. Because within the context of the British Army, his nickname throughout the war, Pinto, Pinto Pereira, uh, referenced Portuguese background uh, and ancestry. But all his letters are in, are in English, uh, along with those occasional phonetic spellings of Hindi and, and French words. So it's a, it's a shame, perhaps, we don't have more in what he thought of the, uh, the, the ill-fated Portuguese expedition. And did he have any sort of political views uh, in his letters? I mean, for instance, did he comment on things like the Easter Rising? Now, that's quite interesting because he, uh, he commented on all sorts of things, but quite often in relative um, broad ways. And one of the reasons for this, I think, is that he is in the thick of the action for so much of um, it really gets across how busy middle-ranking commander could be. That, you know, that the idea that uh, chateau generalship and lives of leisure and, and all this sort of thing, I'm afraid it just doesn't doesn't exist. So his interest in, in the wider war certainly does exist, but he tends to, his letters back to Helen tend to focus a lot more on what he's been doing because he is so busy and he's seeing so much um, you know, so much action and, and so, so much work to be done and so many things to do. Um, he tends to rely more on Helen uh, to provide him newly uh, from the home front. So he doesn't comment explicitly on the Easter Rising, but Helen does comment on a wide variety of politi uh, political matters. And she's uh, very, very uh, forthright in her opinions of various things. She quite happily criticised the press, for example. She can be critical of government, critical of policy and so on. Whereas Cecil, I think, by virtue of uh, two things. One, that extreme busyness in the West. And secondly, I do think that his, his letters back to Helen are uh, trying to convey, of course, that, that, that classic Edwardian stiff up a lip, that he's OK, things are things are well. He's trying to write letters that uh, I'm sure she, he hopes that she will find interesting. Uh, although this does include a surprising amount of military material about how his units have been doing, uh, what the Germans are, what they're like. It did include small maps and so on, uh, showing some of his actions recreate a book. So Cecil himself had relatively little to say about politics, but Helen certainly does have a, a great deal more to say about these. Some of her comments can be quite acid. She certainly uh, is not afraid to express strong opinions. And my penultimate question is, what projects are you working uh, on now? Well, the, the next project, uh, having completed the uh, the Catholic General Letter, we hope, though this is an early stage, we hope that there's the possibility of producing Cecil's Boer War correspondence. He fought in the Boer War for two years, arriving in early 1900. And this would be, of course, be a rather different account to First World War. We hope that that might be of interest too. On my own side, I'm currently working on the, uh, the, the gosh, I've got to count, the fourth in the series of books I have edited that study the British Army year by year. So those are Stemming the Tide on 1914, Courage Without Glory on 1915, at all costs on 1916 and now the latest volume is called The Darkest Year and will cover 1917 and it will take the same format as the previous two volumes so there will be contributions from a wide variety of scholars including and hope to give me for this including of course your good self um, we'll have it will include 17 chapters quite appropriate I thought for a book about 1970 covering all sorts of aspects of British Army war uh, on the Western Front in 1917. They're currently in the process of editing that volume. It will be released next year. Of course, the production of the volume has been slowed down somewhat by coronavirus and all the related problems we have. But um, the, it is now quite close to completion and we, it will be published next year by Hellion. 
I do hope if you've enjoyed the previous books in the series that you'll look this one up too. And finally, where can people learn more about your research? There's two, though, actually, there's three places you can you can learn a bit more about my research. Um, you can always type my name into Google. Uh, and as long as you add the, uh, the, the suffix historian, uh, you'll find what you'll find my Wolverhampton staff page with the latest I've been doing. If you don't have this, um, then unfortunately you'll find a comedian who's got the same name. And um, though some people might say I'm a bit of a joker, uh, I'm afraid I don't do comedy. So uh, do make sure that you add historian to it. But the best way to keep up with, with my latest projects is actually to follow me on Twitter. Follow me via my uh, Twitter handle, which is historian1914, or one word, um, where you can see what the latest things I'm doing and, and speak to me sort of quite directly. And you can also see all my latest books, uh, which I've published most of my books with through uh, um, through Hellion, but there are other books available. If you search for Spencer Jones books on Amazon, see the latest publications, including, of course, Catholic General, which I've edited with Edward Pereira and Dr. Michael Cicero. And I do hope that some of them, because I think it's a, a terrific book and a terrific, no matter what level of interest you have, there will be something in this interest you. Spencer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...